But that's all I can really tell you because it's 4.30 and it's time for Living Writers. I do have to tell you that events information is brought to you by Current Magazine and Arbor's Entertainment Monthly. It's available at many locations around town. Events info can be heard in the morning at 1.30, 4.30, 7.30, and 10.30, and also at 1.30 p.m., 4.30 p.m., and 8.30 p.m. right here on WCBN and Arbor. Take it away, Living Writers. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Welcome to the Living Writers Program. Today on Living Writers, T. Hetzel interviews Andre Kodrescu. And now that if I've got your last name pronounced correctly, may I call you Andre for the rest of the program? Yeah. <laughs> Okay. No, I'll I'll keep attempting. Um, welcome. So you just this this I should say we're we're taping the show. Um, it's December eighth, two thousand nine, um, and you've come to town. You're going to give a talk at Rackham Auditorium and sign some sign some books at Borders. And um, is this part of your the posthuman Dada Guide um, World Domination Tour? Well. Uh... <laughs> No, the world domination tour already happened. That was about eleven cities in uh, as soon when the book came out. That was in spring, was it? I was looking in, at your in your... the spring. Okay. Now it's the twentieth anniversary of the revolutions or uh, revolts in uh, Eastern Europe and uh, Romania, which had a, a violent episode in nineteen ninety nine that I covered for NPR and ABC News, and so I'm part of a symposium on uh, on twenty years after. So that's pretty, that's heavy stuff. Well, it's heavy, but it's also part of the history of uh, Dada and the post-human Dada guide. It's all what isn't, really? my area of concern, which is, you know, the oddness of the world. It's, it should be everyone's concern. Right, we're all some people find it normal. It's extraordinary, <laughs> or they just have to keep going, right? <laughs> With that. Well, but without further ado, I'm going to read the short um, biography um, from the back of the posthuman data guide. Uh, Zara and Lenin play chess, um, and this is out uh, as we said this last spring with Princeton uh, University Press. Andre Kodrescu is an award-winning writer and national public radio commentator, the author of many essay collections, including The Disappearance of the Outside. He is the McCurdy Dis Distinguished Professor of English at Louisiana State University. Now retired? Yes. Okay. And, and, let's, and we'll fill in the, the rest of your writer bio as we go. We've, uh, sure, we can also forget about the writer bio since. Uh, <laughs> well, let's talk about it. Yeah, because then we can we'll just be talk about the book, right? Yeah. Well, well, when did you? Well, let's start with the book, and then I'd like to hear when you started writing, because I think you were a, a wee lad when you how, when you began. But um, the posthuman data guide. Um, 
Tristan Cesara. Am I saying his name correctly, yeah, Andre? Yeah, that's right, Tristan Cesara. Um, and Lennon mm-hmm. play chess. This is an imaginative construct um, <sighs> as a way to 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 build this guide because it's not a manifesto. It's actually sort of something you can put in your pocket and take with you into the surreal of the real. Right. Well, it is. Uh, it looks like a guide. It is a manifesto. It's also a historical um, uh, gathering of, uh, of facts. Uh, and not so imaginary ones, because uh, Tristan Zara and uh, uh, the, the one of the founders of the Dada art and uh, art movement uh, was in Zurich in 1916 at the same time as Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, the daddy of the Russian Revolution. And Einstein... Einstein was there, was the city of Carl Jung, James Joyce was around, um, there are only two coffee houses in town, uh, L'Odeon and, uh, and Café de la Terrasse, and what these refugees from all over World War One were doing in Zurich in, in 1916 was to wait and to play chess and... Uh, uh, hang out in the coffee houses, waiting for the end of the war, plotting their revolutions. It's and a- cabaret. Well, Tristan Zara, who was a young 20-year-old Romanian poet, had come uh, to Zurich uh, to be with, uh, to, to visit, or visit. Uh, he was running away from the Romanian army, but he had come to uh, to live with his friends, uh, Marcel and uh, Janko and his brothers, and looking desperately for something to do. Uh, they had already uh, written and uh, conducted a kind of mini avant-garde revolution in Bucharest before they got to Zurich, but uh, they had the good fortune of running into Hugo Ball and uh, Emmy Hennings, who had just rented a restaurant in um, in Zurich to put on cabaret performances, and they named it Cabaret Voltaire in honor of the great French skeptic, and um, they started mounting these outrageous performances every evening and uh, they had a very receptive audience because everyone was a refugee and how did you how did you research this andre like what was the because um when i was here in the mfa program marie Howe assigned us each different topics and i happened to get data which was wonderful when i saw the the title of your latest book um how did you research like the cabaret because was it what's left of it was it because i know there's print there's media like traces left of like the journals they made but how do you find out about the cabaret what are the artifacts well, the beauty of Dada is to have not left behind a whole lot of artifacts. I mean, there are, there are, but they uh, were a movement that was dedicated very much to the destruction of their own productions because what mattered to them was the process of making art. And uh, so, yes, you can find, you know, the work by Marcel Duchamp at, uh, at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, the famous uh, Armat urinal, the upside-down urinal, right. or you can find, you know, various uh, writings of the periods, and uh, there is a v- pretty big literature of Dada, I mean, about Dada, scholarly literature, so there's there's quite a bit to research, if that's what... You but how to... did you piece together, like, what the cabaret would be like? Because when you said it, I'm wondering if every night, because of, like, maybe the nature or non-nature of Dada, whatever it would embrace, um, or not, um, like, was it always new? Was that required? Like, instead of, like, um, a stand-up comic that's honing, right? Uh, and performing nightly, this would be something completely different. 
Well, they were, they, there are contemporary accounts of what went on. And then, of course, Tristan Zara himself later wrote quite a bit about it. But uh, you're absolutely right that everything had to be new. I mean, this is one of the programs that they said to themselves was, A, the war is absurd. What's going on in Europe now is, a, is proof of the bankruptcy of European thinking, of the failure of the Enlightenment to actually be enlightened in any way. And so we must start with art and overthrow art and western art and what people think about art and philosophy as well and so to do that they they made absurd plays they uh, read poems simultaneously they improvised on stage uh, marcel yonko made some extraordinary masks that were at first reminiscent of African art or the kind of work Picasso was doing uh, because they're connected to a number of avant-garde artists in, in Europe but uh, the, the necessity to do something new and the fact that the audience is so terribly emotionally overwrought and by the war uh, created a, a dynamite combination and so suddenly they found themselves in fact uh, uh, in 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 uh, deploying uh, an aesthetic, a, dis a machine of destruction that was quite new and, and powerful and, and, as it turns out, lasted for the rest of the century and is relevant in the 21st because what they actually made there didn't rust. Mm. Yes, the, yeah, because it's a... Because it's because they were sort of against machines in a way, like the machinery of, of things. Well, they perfected saying no. And so they said no to almost everything that uh, seemed reasonable to most reasonable people. And so uh, that uh, 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 manner of saying no and that energy uh, uh, appeals and still to, to young people and it certainly appealed to the punk generation and to the post-punk uh, artists. And uh, it's a kind of energy that is an essential part of art uh, that can't be museumified. You just can't put it in the museum. Now, it's easy enough for other avant-garde movements like surrealism or cubism to be to be defined very quickly because they have a look. You know what a surrealist painting looks like. And so the Museum of Modern Art, for instance, was able to put together a surrealist retrospective in the 1950s. Well, they were never quite able to do that with Dada. You just can't. Because you can't really capture because it's on the move, really. And then it would be saying it wasn't that if you did manage to catch it for a moment. Well, the move, they also used extremely perishable materials. Some of oh, okay. the collages that Hans Harp and, uh, and uh, Hugo Ball are doing are made with very cheap stuff that they found around. Now, Dada had a great resurgence in New York when many of the Dadaists came to uh, get away from another horrific war that uh, <laughs> engulfed <laughs> Europe soon enough, and they came to New York, and New York was a, was a great uh, place for them because there was so much stuff that you could pick up at second-hand stores and make art and so many ways in which to, 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 cre to create theater in the public space. And this and and this creating theater in the public space and this this ethos is is your own as well. This process of making is what's primary in your own artistic life. Well, so it keeps me going as uh, as a writer. If I had to write the same thing twice, I'd probably die of boredom. Uh, it's why I'm not an actor either. Because if I if I had to say the same thing every evening, I would just <laughs> I would just fall down and melt. <laughs> So it has to it has to be new. I mean, Ezra Pound said, "Make it new for his own reasons." But uh, I don't see how you could be an artist and not make it new. I mean, 
uh, you could make it perfect. And for many centuries, art was the uh, skill of perfection. Uh, the aristocracy of Europe wanted things perfect. They didn't want things new. So they hired craftsmen, skilled people. But art, uh, uh, they didn't want art. So art, <laughs> so art was a way that poor people had of making objects uh, from stuff they found. And it still is, if it has any energy, the, the, the art of the poor. The 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 the, the uh, job and craft and uh, occupation of the poor. Yeah, there, there's in one of the your your interviews that you said that the poor make the art and then the the then sell it to the rich. Like that's that's sort of the trajectory well, of it. But then that's hopefully uh, how it happens. I mean, I'm not sure exactly where we are in that process. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you been to Bread and Puppet Theater out in Glover, Vermont? Is yes, that, I have. Because I, I thought you might like, well, because you're writing manifestos and I wondered if you ever saw the Why Cheap Art Manifesto that they have. No, but this is wonderful because this Why Cheap Art Manifesto is uh, is uh, has one of the very few features of Dada, which is tight. They did use type. You recognize uh, uh, the uh, Dada Manifesto by the use of type, and this is definitely it. And the brother and puppets were inspired. They were political. They were... Uh, um, Performance-based. And uh, what's interesting about them is that they actually stayed in one place and they created a community. Uh, they didn't travel very much. And so the bread and puppets, if you wanted to see them, you had to go to Vermont and go to the woods and stay there. They go, <laughs> yes, they, they, go to some, they go to some universities. I think they can, if you bring them, <laughs> I guess. But yeah. Art uh, is food. That's right. Art has to be cheap and available to everybody. Absolutely. Um yeah. Oh, yeah. I love the I love the brother and puppet. They're they're great. They've 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 been around for so long there that they've buried their own uh, first generation of people and they made fantastic sculpture monuments of their graves in a whispering pine forest. It's quite quite remarkable. Yes, that is beautiful. And the I think the founder though he is still going strong and he I think he's in his 70s perhaps and he was up on stilts when I was there this summer. On stilts with a German accent. Yeah. <laughs> the tallest man in the world. <laughs> um, well, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so pleased to have Andre Kodrescu here. The, his latest of many, the Posthuman Dada Guide, will be back. times for a minute Gossip rumors in your window Can I buy you another drink? The city's coming back, I feel it It's back right now, don't you think? Then I look out Molly's window Where the quarter girls go by on bikes Fresh flowers of the Vukare Tattoo like sailors on the street And I see only contractors and soldiers Tough hombres and country boys Not a floor among them as they stroll KC 
Mixing up a made up gal with dollar signs In her hard, hard eyes Said no Where did all the fresh flowers go? Where did all the quarter gals disappear? Where are all the tattoos of yesteryear? Flowers go. Where did all the quarter gals disappear? Where are all the tattoos of yesteryear? Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so pleased to have Andre Kodrascu here. His latest, The Post-Human Data Guide, Zara and Lennon Play Chess, um, a popular pastime in Zurich and also in Romania. It's well, it is a popular pastime in Zurich because it was a way to get away from the crowd. Because uh, playing chess is a way to be alone in the crowd, and uh, the players live in their own mental space and the kibitzers sit around and they are just uh, just white noise <laughs> um so you have tristan zara in his own uh world thinking about what they're going to do shocking enough at cabaret voltaire that night and then you have lennon who is probably not just thinking but also exchanging signals with some of his collaborators and conspirators because he's waiting to go to Russia and uh, take over. And part of that plan uh, is for the German high command to actually take Lenin and Radek and Zinoviev into Russia across Europe at the war and uh, take Russia out of the war. Uh, the German high command had an interest in um, uh, stopping, uh, taking Russia out of the war and uh, had an interest in, in helping the Bolshevik revolution succeed. And so uh, there was a lot Lenin had to think about. Yeah, a lot. So long, long days and nights at the cafe for Lenin. <laughs> well, in libraries. Lenin loved the libraries of oh. Zurich because uh, it's also a year... Uh, he'd spent a year of 1905 in Zurich uh, after the failure of the first attempt at the revolution in Russia. Uh, 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 failure he blamed on Trotsky, but uh, uh, he spent a very lonely year in 1905. Now, in 1916, it was more hopeful, although personally he was not any happier. He was pretty miserable. He was living with his uh, common-law wife, Nadia Krupskaya, in a, in a miserable, miserable room uh, with her bad, uh, mean Swiss landlord, and uh, his girlfriend... Uh, Don't make me feel sorry for Lennon. <laughs> I'm not going to feel sorry for him. <laughs> you know, I feel sorry. <laughs> but his, his girlfriend, Ines Armand, who lived only an hour away in, uh, in, in, in Switzerland, wasn't uh, writing to him and wasn't seeing him, I guess. She gave up on him and was actually... Um, practicing some of their theoretical discussions of free love. So Lenin was pretty actually pretty depressed, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, well well this um your your book, Andre, the the post human data guide, um, how did you settle on this format to talk about because it's obvious just from 
once once you get started on it, there's like this unfolding of facts and story upon moment upon moment is it's it comes out comes from you. <laughs> so is that why you designed the book the way you did? Like how because um, often it seems like you're asked to talk about things like you said, like uh, like a, a fire, like a, a glass association, and then you go and you prep and you you know research and research. But this is something so close to you that it's like you're surrounded by it. It's in you. So, uh, yeah. so how did you manage to harness it into a book? I needed. Uh, I, I, you're right. It was a whole uh, a whole lot of stuff, and I wanted a structure that was simple enough that it's part of everybody's brain. And I found the alphabet. Uh, so the book is organized alphabetically. I mean, yes, alphabetically, but um, in in odd ways, the alphabet organizes a vast amount of material. And uh, it's part of, uh, an, so there's an expectation there that is almost like a, a suspense and the, and the narrative when you get from A to B and from B to C because it's just part of our... Like <laughs> how, how to transition or so. Uh, well, you're just, you're reading B. I'm not sure what B is in there, Berlin probably or... Uh, is it Ball, Hugo Ball? And Hugo Ball, <laughs> Ball, Hugo. And, uh, um, and then you're, you're waiting for C. Uh, and ah. so there is a sense of uh, surprise uh, that is actually built in one of the oldest and most predictable structures we have, which is the alphabet. <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. That's something, because I was wondering why you didn't decide to just, because it's a guide, so it makes sense that there'd be like these regular divisions of some sort. Right. Because you had uh, earlier said something about the novel being one of your favorite forms because you can, as long as you have a thread, you can throw everything you want into it, be it a recipe or whatever. <laughs> um, so, but you purposely chose not to make like us because you have a construct here. Well, in this case, yeah, in this case, it was actually, a, 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 I was looking to reduce the material to, to something uh, that was good in every sentence but uh was a lot less than you could say about it and i didn't i wanted to surprise myself too because i knew so much about it and i didn't want to bore myself by uh, um, repeating things other people have said about it. And so, I mean, my model in this instance was Tristan Zara, the poet, who was Romanian, who was Jewish, who was from a small town in, in, in Moldova. Who also who, renamed himself, who renamed like you. himself, yeah. His original name was Sammy Rosenstock, and uh, he's, he, he named himself Tristan Zara, which means Tristan Zara, which is sad in the country. <laughs> he, he was... <laughs> Sad in Moldova, sad in Romania, sad in the Balkans, Such a <laughs> sad <poet>. in Europe. <laughs> it was a sad world, but uh, he was quite a, um, um, uh, an in he intuited that something fundamental was 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 needed, and in 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 doing that, actually, he he invented posthumanity. I mean, he he connected the postmodernity in an amazing, un way i think there was a, a the war had created some kind of vacuum there and to which everything fell and melted away that w europe had considered up to that point uh, um, worthy of uh, of dignity and respect 
And so, and, and Andre, because we we're talking about the naming, like, why, why did you rename yourself as well? Because it's interesting. Is it because um, Tristan Zara was always a hero? Was it conscious or was it like, what was your, and, and did you do it when you were still um, over in Romania? I, I don't have the time frame down or when you went to Italy or when you arrived in Detroit or... Well, when I was 14, uh, the writer's workshop in my hometown decided that I was ready to publish. And so they, I decided I should have a good Romanian name because my Jewish name, Promoter, was not uh, publishable in Romania at the time. Uh, communists, like the fascists before them, practiced, well, a different style of anti-Semitism. But you really couldn't publish under a Jewish name. So and but uh, and so is that something where you just you well I could but have that is about like also breaking down like rebelling right so right but like, there wasn't uh, but you're fourteen well it was that uh, it wasn't just that I was fourteen but it was also a tradition to if you're a poet to have uh, some kind of pseudonym and so part of it was that of course if your name was. Uh, you know, uh, tabletop, you changed it to something more poetic like... Mountaintop. Uh, mountaintop, exactly. So, <laughs> you know, I suppose part of that, you know, lyric tradition. And, of course, at 14, I really had no idea who to... I mean, I had never read anything by Tristan Zara. He was on the list of forbidden poets, and there were quite a few of them we didn't read. So, But I, I knew who he was, and I had a kind of a abstract admiration for this uh, other Romanian Jew who had broken the mold. And so... Anyway, I, I changed it to something called steyu, which means crag or rock, and it was... Uh, That's strong. Yes, and when you write it down, it's S-T-E-I-U, but by hand, the U looks like an N, so it looks like Stein, so I really didn't get very far from the Jewish business, and so... <laughs> For rebelling. <laughs> so I made up Kadrescu in Italy when I sent back some poems to a Romanian newspaper, and uh, then I realized that unconsciously I was practicing myself a kind of... in internal anti-Semitism because Codranu was one of the founders of the fascist Iron Guard in Romania and a notorious anti-Semite and so Codrescu and Codranu are pretty close and at that point I, I, I knew it and I decided that I would just become more famous than the fascist and I would just make him, um, you know, leave him in the dust. Yeah, diminish him And but why Son of Woods? Like what was the meaning behind that were you from a like a forested area yeah or? i grew up yeah i grew up in the mountains in the woods and i always loved the woods and i live in the woods now so it turns out that you know names are destiny you do end up uh, fulfilling it in some way or another <laughs> so that's that is pretty good well you know what why don't we hear let's you know find a random spot or so here well let's the... play another game of, of oracular <laughs> reading you know, the way i usually practice this is uh uh, you can ask me a question, any question, whether personal or not, or uh, intimate or trivial, and I'll open the book and I'll answer it. Okay. Um, uh, if you had a daughter, what would you have named her? Collage. The preeminent expression of the 20th century. Picasso and Braque introduced newspapers into their paintings of random objects whose forms were more important than their objective models. A whole universe of the 20th century's new objects came into view, especially the newspapers and their advertisements. Tsara brought it home. Quote, to make a Dadaist poem, take a newspaper, take a pair of scissors, choose an article as long as you are, 
planning to make your palm, then take the scraps out one after the other in the order in which they left the bag, copy conscientiously, this poem will be like you. And here you are, a writer, infinitely original and endowed with a sensibility that is charming, though beyond the understanding of the vulgar. So, of course, if I had a daughter, I would name her Collage. Collage. <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't really? Collage Kodrasko, she'd be terrific. It is. It's, it does have, it's beautiful, actually. When you said it, I was like, that works. Well, my theory is that good books, actually, if they're any good, uh, will answer your questions. Uh, and bad books won't. And so this is a very easy way to shop. You go to the store and you ask it a question and you open the book. And if it answers it, buy it. What, um, how do you come up with new questions to ask your, your own books, Andre? Like, well, everybody has questions, you know. I mean, we we live in a sea of questions. What am I going to have for lunch? I mean, <laughs> should we see? <laughs> hey, it's past lunchtime. That's not. That's no fair. <laughs> well, well the, so thank. Well, thanks for the example. So we opened to the seas. There, we had that. Um, well, there you go. I mean, the connections are endless. So, uh, part of the pleasure of writing about Dada is that you really can't go wrong by making the most uh, outlandish jump or leap into the, to something else because it will connect somehow and in a way that's hopefully surprising. And how, uh, I mean, we've, oh, we've got, let's see, well, why don't we, um, we'll take a short break, Andre. I'd like to talk about your making of poems as well, like whether, um, I don't know, because you've got, you've now you've got quite, quite a catalog and you publish with coffeehouse press is that and black sparrow for your poetry is that usually the yeah i have a long and boring bibliography it's so. super long it's like yeah yeah i mean you could read that and have a whole show but i mean this is just a kind of a wait the reason i write those things is so i can get rid of us so i can do something fresh does it bother you that they, they become don't other people's obsessions yeah yes <laughs> so. yeah but what if they don't de like um deconstruct themselves like or uh, destroy themselves like that that element of like the making it's the process not the the artifact How well, well for me it's just getting rid of certain things i think and then uh, cleaning the hard drive and then i feel i feel new and give all my uh obsessions to other people and i'm kind of i think Writers are self-cleaning insects. They just take this stuff in your head and they clean, clean, clean it up so you can start again. What kind of insect would you be then? Like what sort of? Uh, all, all the insects do that. I think roaches do that. You know, they clean. They're they're very fastidious. And hardy. Yes, and shiny, some of them. And some of them are shiny. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Andre Kodrescu. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers, and now a short break. You're tuned to the Living Writers Program on WCBN-FM, continuing now as T. Hetzel interviews Andre Kodrescu. In person. 
NPR superstar here at WCBN. <laughs> oh, thanks for reminding me. Yeah, well, I you've was, got a lot of things going. I was beginning to feel humble. <laughs> okay, well, then let's go back to your biography. Well, actually, I do have a question. Why Detroit? When you came to the States from Italy, what landed you um, on streety Detroit? I loved that word that you, you used to describe it. And, Yes, treaty. Well, I, I heard there was a place that was dark, gloomy, and uh, <laughs> and desperate. <laughs> uh, like Celine, I decided to come to Detroit. Now, what happened is my mother, uh, I, we emigrated together, and she did have a friend who uh, sponsored our emigration and uh, Hias, uh, the Jewish uh, help organization, uh, the time was providing Eastern European refugees with some three months of allowance for uh, rent and food, and so highest in Detroit uh, had a, had a, had that available for us until my mother found a job. She was a printer, and um, we um, a we printer lived here. with letterpress or or what? She uh, worked for a printer in my hometown of Sibiu in Romania, which is a very was. A, uh, is a very old medieval town and printing was one of the oldest uh, professions in town the guild there was a printer's guild there almost contemporary to Gutenberg uh, in the 16th century so she learned uh, uh, color separation from uh, in this printing uh, concern and when we uh, when we emigrated this was a high demand job there were no women in that profession because it involved at the time before computers uh, lifting all sorts of heavy plates of metal and so on but she persisted and really became the first woman to do that for a company called Progressive Color in Washington which printed the National Geographic and books for the Museum of Modern Art so she was a very highly skilled um, uh, color separator and and so, but you came to Detroit, and then you you were there, and it was right before the riots began. So you were there as, um, yeah. Well, yeah, I do you? have a, I do have a knack for historical moments. Uh, uh, we got here in 1966. In 1967, Detroit was in flames. It was burning, and uh, we were driving on John Lodge Expressway, and the uh, radio was playing Jose Feliciano uh, singing, Come on, baby, light my fire. <laughs> and as we turned around, downtown was in flames. So it was a, a momentous uh, time. And then a few minutes later, of course, the 82nd Airborne and the National Guard were rolling down Woodward Avenue, pointing uh, their guns at any heads that appeared after curfews. So, you know, I, I had come from a nice, peaceful communist country into a very turbulent and interesting place. And then I went to New York. I was 1968 to find my fellow poets on the Lower East Side, and there they were, 1968, 1969. Yeah. To find where you believe sure. the poets. Okay. And... Uh, Lived there for a time, and those uh, uh, were years also of gigantic demonstrations against the Vietnam War. My generation was pretty uh, torn between, uh, you know, the, the the ones who did go to the war, the ones who didn't. There was a real generation gap. A hair curtain fell between generations. Um, <laughs> 
I came from, heard about I the came hair f- curtain. I came from the iron one, but yeah. <laughs> you know, I've done, I found the hair one. Uh, 1968 was the year in Prague when the Soviet uh, the troops uh, um, suppressed the, the revolt um, of the of the Czech students. Uh, 1968 was the year in Paris when uh, um, uh, uh, revolution. Uh, happened and um, uh, the situationists were creating their new data world as well. So it was a very eventful uh, time in the West, and it was I had more of a sense of generational solidarity than I did about any specific uh, place or or or, uh, or politics. Yeah, national like, borders. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I felt like Detroit and Paris, and then of course later that year Chicago in 1968, where you had absolutely notorious riots in uh, during the Democratic Convention, and uh, 1968 was when uh, Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King were assassinated. So. Uh, it was a thrill of a minute. And it which, didn't matter whether you had any money or not. Which, which leads me to the hoo-hoo in. Was that before you left? <laughs> <laughs> that, does that place still exist? Well, I don't know, but now I want to see if it does. I want to drive in there because, well, you said you got a fortune cookie there. Or was that just another thing that wasn't quite true, but... It could be true. No, no, it was. It was. It was. It was called a Ho Ho Inn, and it was on Cass, I think, in in Detroit. And it was the only. It was a late night uh, Chinese greasy spoon. <laughs> Students like to go there and and after drinking and you know to soak some of it up. Right, and uh, <laughs> the place was, you know, it was very amusing. And actually, in in a funny way, it was about the only exotic quote-unquote food around because it was uh, those days of still um, Before, mashed potatoes and, <laughs> and meatloaf. Thai restaurants hadn't come. Uh, oh, Maybe nah. there wasn't a Greek town yet. <laughs> well, no, there was a Greek town. Oh, Actually, was, okay. Greek town was here, but not that many. There were like two or three Greek restaurants. So, yeah. but, but you got a fortune cookie there, right? Or was that was that just a story you made up that said, tomorrow you read The Corpse or something? Was that sort of a life direct? Or, um, oh, you must have read this in the editorial to the, yes. the Exquisite Corpse. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, That's why I'm wondering if it's real or not, or what part of it is real. I don't know why I should care, but... <laughs> well, I don't remember, but I mean, obviously, fortune cookies are as good as anything else about predicting the, <laughs> predicting what's going to happen. They're as good as astrologers, certainly. So, um, Or asking a good book. You know, I mean, anyone who doesn't have a fortune cookie taped to the refrigerator, you know, I <laughs> don't think, trust them. Don't, don't, don't trust, trust them. <laughs> Indeed. But you, st- so then you started the Exquisite Corpse in 1983, but it was a print medium then, probably as a gesture towards your mom as well. Like, would she, did you ever imagine that would it would, well, no. Well, you know, well, it's a good question. Because yeah. you've left behind the print medium well, aspect of it. It's a good question. It. I mean, I'm, nobody's brought up the Oedipal angle until now, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's, we we published Exquisite Corpse as a literary journal in uh, in Baltimore because uh, most literary magazines are terribly boring in 1983, and 
I thought we would make a sassy-looking uh, publication that uh, had some nerve and some scandalous feel to it, and uh, also publish good writers who weren't getting published. <laughs> and uh, it's, it caught on, so we published it originally as a monthly, which was entirely too much work, and then right. it became a quarterly. <laughs> I took it with me to, uh, to um, Baton Rouge, to Louisiana, and it was a print journal on, from 1983 until 1996. And then we were one of the first magazines to go entirely to the internet because I, I figured that uh, the, it was over for print. And uh, we, we uh, corpse.org. <laughs> <laughs> you got that corpse.org C-O-R-P-S-E dot O-R-G was one of the few literary magazines actually on, on the net and on the web in um, then of course since then you know, there, yeah, there are many and the forms changed and mutated very quickly but uh, yeah, it was a, was a way to stay amused in, uh, in, in the literary world which is for the most part pretty boring and was that Maybe any, less boring now. Well, well, actually, we, as you were saying, what the mission was at the onset, I'm, I'm hoping that I mean that's probably a mission that you've stayed true to even now, like sassy, some scandal, and, and now it's like it seems like it's more global, like people more can access it quicker. So that would be a plus of it. But I wondered if something, anything was lost in the transition from print to well some, maybe not. something was lost in my transition because I managed to insult quite a few people so there went all my great prizes <laughs> oh, <laughs> how kidding. did you insult them what do you oh, mean well, because there's we, still prizes because for our, you Andre our reviews well I'm, yes of course there's <laughs> one right here but um, I'm just you know uh, we we reviewed books and talked about literature in the, in the way that we talked about it at the bar. So we were direct and we were not sparing of feelings and we called things what we thought they were and so that was rather an unusual uh, uh, thing to do in print. You have to be a bit more delicate perhaps? Uh, well you had to be delicate and there was a whole, a whole etiquette to actually reviewing books. I mean people didn't give bad reviews to books that seemed uh, insignificant really because they were published in five copies but we, we took everything seriously and so I thought part of the idea of being serious was to talk about them as if they mattered and so um, well, that shows respect. I think so. And, uh, I, I, well, of course, we took on quite a few establishment figures who are then, you know, uh, well well known in this little sort of world and, and uh, uh, made enemies, which was fine. But, uh, you know, to go back to your question about this, something is lost uh, from print, we lost our intimate readership to people who were subscribing and actually reading the journal. And suddenly, but then we had more readers, and suddenly there are kids in Japan who are running into the into the web uh, site. And uh, uh, Google Analytics now tells us that there are people who actually spend more than two and a half minutes on the site, which is pretty interesting because I think you know twenty seconds these days is a lot. And uh, so there are. It's a different audience, and to my mind, it's probably a uh, a better one because I think that the people who read us before they're faithful readers but uh, uh, they're also collectors and the collectors will be around I mean they never they're never going to go anywhere but 
as far as content and reading, uh, you're you're better uh, in the new media because it doesn't. Freshness or... Yeah, and it doesn't matter what you read. You can sit with your Kindle in uh, in the subway or with your iPhone and read uh, uh, the New York Times, or you can read porn, and nobody knows what you're reading, and it doesn't matter. So this this kind of um, so some Christmas gifts to think about, Veronica. So, <laughs> Yeah, but this idea, Get you know, your love, loved one a Kindle. So that they when can you be when you read anonymous. the Times, for instance, you're a Times reader. People see you reading the New York Times, so oh, there is right. a there is a pose to reading the Times, you know, as mm. opposed to anything else. But you're, you're you're reading your screen. Nobody has any idea what you're reading, so you're actually reading for content. Mm. Yeah, it's your own identity, not the identity you want to portray to project. So it relieves you really of the necessity to to have a public persona as a reader. Although I do feel, I don't know, I'm, I'm somehow really resistant to the whole, that the Kindle. I can see that it's, it does save paper, though. You like to be seen with Marcel Proust. <laughs> yeah, get out of that, Proust. We're going for a walk. No. <laughs> Not so much that, I guess, I just like the artifact. Like, I like the look of your book, even. Like, I think um, Princeton did a nice job with this. They did a very good job. They're like publishing a new book uh, come in the next year called The Poetry Lesson, which is the distilled 25 years of my uh, uh, suffering as a professor. <laughs> it, uh, I don't mean to laugh. It's funny, actually. It's a, it's, I think it's a very funny book. <laughs> Some of my colleagues may not think so. Oh, more enemies ahead, Andre? Well, I mean, uh, enemies. I mean, if you can still make enemies, it means you're alive. Yeah, exactly. I, I know a woman when I was riding my bike to work, a woman yelled at me when she was walking diagonal across the cross, uh, you know, the intersection. And I thought, this is good. It's funny that she's yelling at me while she's on her phone walking diagonally across. I don't know why I'm telling this story. Sure. Andre. It's proof you're alive. <laughs> That's right. And here we are. <laughs> Let's take a short break. We'll be back um, today on the program. Andre Kodrescu, his latest, The Posthuman Dada Guide. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Welcome back. You've got T. Hetzel and Living Writers here, Tex in the engineering seat, and special guest star Andre Kodrescu here in the studio. Um, thanks again for coming, Andre, for being here. Well, my pleasure. Uh, is it true Alan Ginsberg was here? Yeah, yeah, he was here and he said some, you know, WCBN FM Ann Arbor, and he, yeah. Yeah, uh, he, was, I don't, I don't, he was the first poet I came to visit when I came to uh, when I went to New York. I went to find him on Third uh, Street in the Lower East Side, and uh, I asked these guys sitting in front if they knew if Alan Ginsberg lived there, and they had a little conference, and they said, "No, we don't know who that is." <laughs> because they were protecting him, or what? Was no, that? they just didn't know. They were just an old apartment building on the Lower East Side, so I went in and looked at the mailboxes that were all opened then with uh, delinquent teenage screwdrivers, and there was Alan's and Peter Orlovsky's name. 
And so what did you do? Did you go up and knock on the yeah, door? I just went up and knocked at the door and a perfectly naked, dripping wet. Peter Rolowski opened the door and he wasn't talking at the time. Alan wasn't home. So I sat around. For, you know, Peter went back into the bathtub where he was spending all his time then. And he, 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 I looked at him, he looked at me, and then I felt uh, like oh, maybe it was time to leave. And I got up and then Alan came home and he was quite affable and wonderful. And we had a long conversation in Alan's bad French and mine slightly better, but not much. And uh, he gave me a lot of books and we became friends. Ha. Ah, and so, so that's like, uh, you should talk to your poetic heroes if they're alive then Andre is that your is that your advice to young poets today <laughs> or it seems less likely that well, that happens as much or did alive you just... or dead it doesn't really matter I mean you, oh, you have to create yourself a kind of a spiritual intellectual poetic family and uh, if they're alive sure I think you should visit them but don't visit me um, that's why I'm in the woods <laughs> don't worry uh, everyone he's just right. looking at me when he says that <laughs> <laughs> no uh, but yeah I think it's important to find your affinities, the writers who you feel some kind of soul connection to and then uh, write to them and find them. And uh, it's amazing how actually hungry uh, writers are for uh, the attention of uh, young writers. And and so with Ginsburg, that's, that, do you have any other stories up your sleeve, Andre, that you want to th throw on the table here? None that I can None. share. <laughs> Point taken. <laughs> well, with with your uh, New Orleans has become like a is that the place that now you've lived the longest of any place in your entire life, like your lifetime so far? That's a good question. So, yeah, I think so. Well, let's see, it'd be 25, 27 years. So, uh, yeah, that's that's about it. I lived uh, 19 years in Transylvania. Uh, Two and a half years in Detroit, about three years in New York, uh, about uh, eight years in California, and uh, uh, some years in Baltimore. And yes, you're absolutely right. New Orleans is really where I'm from. And so is John Sinclair, by the way, one of your, De your Michigan, Detroit, and Arbor um, um, great person persons who uh, uh, was uh, for a long time a DJ for WWZ FM in, in New Orleans and uh, now lives in Amsterdam but I met John when I came to Detroit in 1966 and he then moved to New Orleans and we renewed our connection so you know, oh that's that's good it's lovely these things happen yeah but then that so that place has then um because it seems like in a way you've been writing um so much from the the tension and um the maybe uh, trying to understand or whatever it is that like that compels us with from leaving Transylvania from leaving Romania and when what happened and now like uh New Orleans like what uh, I guess if if you've lived in this place and if now it's you um how did you write about it with your poems? Because I'm thinking what to do with your goat in a drowning world. There's a clip available on YouTube that you can hear you reading this poem. Mm -hmm. um, is that one of, is that a way to, that you tried to talk about um, Katrina, post-Katrina? Right. Well, that book is called Jealous Witness uh, and uh, it was published by Coffee House Press and it 
contains a CD uh, by the Klas New Orleans Klezmer All-Stars, uh, produced by the New Orleans Klezmer All-Stars, uh, called Into the Maelstrom. Uh, we heard a clip of it earlier in the program. That was Ivan Neville, one of the famous Neville's uh, singing uh, uh, The Window at Molly's. And there are a number of tremendous singers there who all did it uh, because they wanted to come back to New Orleans, into a studio. They were all refugees from Katrina, and so the album has this uh, emotional charge. It's quite amazing. I, I'm I'm still very moved when I listen to it, and I've heard it about 9,000 times. Um, but that's... Uh, I think of that as a New Orleans book. And then there is a collection of essays called New Orleans Mon Amour, which are also uh, about... Well, they take place in New Orleans at these moments of New Orleans. New Orleans is a very writerly city. It's probably the most overwritten city in America, actually. But uh, way before Katrina, I'm sure post-Katrina, there will be a lot of literature added to it. But this uh, this CD hopefully will be released separately by the by the Klezmers. I mean, I hope they do because it is a, an extraordinary piece of New Orleans music. And when, if you're if if you're holding close like this principle or the uh, i don't even know if that's the way to say it but if if it's if if your your working theory is um to be amused or amusement or amusing like something working within that how do you like that's the that's one way of approaching things that are are painful Right, because I I guess I'm trying to figure out like the, you say like over the the former Eastern Bloc countries like jokes and these ways even um, like the book the joke uh, um, by Kundera or Kundera I'm, I don't mm -hmm. know if I'm mispronouncing mm -hmm. his name but um uh, you, like it's a way of of coping and 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 to be amused and to see things like the horror as like the absurdity that we're bringing to the world like some. Uh, well, there is that. I mean, Eastern European humor is really, it's really pretty dark because it was born out of uh, tremendous um, uh, suffering. And, uh, I mean, you can say that about New Orleans music as well. I mean, jazz is America's music and so are the blues. I mean, these these things come from a very deep, uh, deep uh, and, and, and painful place. Uh, my job, I mean, my job. You know, I mean, what I do is 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 to be a nomad and try uh, literally to be nomad. I mean, not to be mad, but to <laughs> to find places that uh, are are you know what the uh, writer friend calls a Taz. You know, a temporary autonomous zone, a place that is an actual geographical place, like uh, the French Quarter in uh, New Orleans or uh, North Beach was at one point in San Francisco or the left bank in Paris or, you know, these places where it's possible to have a, a certain degree of liberty and, and a certain degree of freedom that you don't have in, in more bourgeois, settled and well-policed places. You have these tazas, these temporary autonomous zones where everything seems possible. Yeah, your ideas. And artists are drawn to these places, obviously, because they're always working on the edge of, uh, uh, of uh, the law, on the edge of, uh, <laughs> you know, of certainly be of subversion and of uh, of um, 
um, uh, even against prevailing sentiments, uh, even if they're not uh, legally liable. But uh, so you you have these places, and then uh, synergies happen in those places because suddenly the writers will meet the musicians, and the musicians will meet the painters, and all their different sets of concerns will feed each other's uh, cre creative uh, uh, work. And uh, these places last for a while, and then they move on because they don't. I mean, in New Orleans right now doesn't quite have that anymore after Katrina it will take a it will take some time but it's uh, you know it may reconstitute itself in that way so you know the suburban architecture of the American cities doesn't permit that and so you have temporary autonomous zones usually in 19th century cities or in downtowns that have been abandoned or uh, you know they have cheap rents and uh, artists can do stuff uh, uh, <laughs> and not need a whole lot of money to do it and you know shopping is a is problematic but uh, so these uh, you know these tasks take root and happen where they happen and I was just lucky enough to find some of them like the New Orleans, and but I like that you say that it's it's also temporary. And I guess you were out in California, so then maybe that's what you're also speaking. Of. But that's part of the nature of well, it. Well, San Francisco too. Yeah. I mean, it had a bohemian scene, and then it went higher end because the uh, artists really are the vanguard of real estate. Every place they go and change a neighborhood, and they make it interesting. The next minute, the money moves in and makes it boring again. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. There's something. So don't be. But you've been very successful. So has it changed you, Andre? Like, how do you, like... I'm then? not sure what that is, you know. I mean, people say successful, but I'm, I mean, I, I don't feel... I mean, I feel successful... It's not like it has I, to be tied to money, right? That's not... Well, I feel successful when I write something or do something that amuses me and I think, well, gives me pleasure and I can actually read it again. If I can stand it again, <laughs> it's great. Or ask it a question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I like to play. Hmm. So it hasn't changed you then doing like doing 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 well because it seems like you you've been able to figure things out in a way like even coming coming on to NPR and also in 1983 the same year as Exquisite Corpse, um, what what did what did radio allow you to do that um, that fit with your your already your nomad nature. Well, that business started because I was writing uh, editorials for the Baltimore Sun to make some money because I didn't have any and I uh, just had a, a child and uh, we needed some quick things like was that Lucian or Tristan diapers or, or, and things that, oh, yeah. <laughs> that was Lucian and so I was writing for the newspaper and the producer at uh, uh, Baltimore uh, the Baltimore radio station said why don't you read one of these out loud and she sent it to uh, her friend Art Silverman at NPR in Washington and then I started doing them and then they were hard at first and then I realized nobody hears what I'm saying because I have this accent so they fell asleep and I've been subversive ever since Right. And hopefully uh, evermore. Thanks. That's well, thanks for being on the program today, Andre. Um, and come again whenever, you, whenever you're around. It's My been pleasure. wonderful to talk with you. Um, uh, you've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Um, today, Andre Kodrescu, his latest, The Posthuman Data Guide. Um, thanks for listening. Until next time. <laughs> Thank you.
Dante. Well, well, well. Off work so early. Francine, I'm in a heavenly mood today. I just got my second installment of my inheritance. Let's celebrate. I got something for you, Sandra. Oh, Elmer, you do that so good. Come on, honey. Move for me, baby. But surely expulsion is not the answer. I'm afraid explosive is the only answer. Thank you, thank you. And now, the moment we've all been waiting for, that lovely lady herself, Miss Cuddles. WCBN-FM presents the John Waters film, Polyester. Noses beware, this one's filmed in Odorama. Wednesday night, June 13th, 9 p.m. at Arbor Brewing Company. Functionality of smells not guaranteed. Call me a cab this instant. The reading and listening party is back. For the second summer, WCBN will be joining forces with Ann Arbor Summerfest and the 33 and 3rd book series on select Monday nights to bring you live readings and deftly selected tunes accompanied by crafty brews. For the first installment on June 18th, Nicholas Rombes will read excerpts from his book on the Ramones' 1976 eponymous debut, followed by a DJ set from WCBN's Kristen, host of Tight Pants. Join us at 7 p.m. Monday, June 18th at Arbor Brewing Co. Boy, typing on a typewriter is hard, but our incompetence can be your good fortune. Are you feeling like a winner? Well, does WCBN have a contest for you? Just pick up one of our brand new summer 2012 program guides available at various locations around town for your chance to win a free WCBN t-shirt. Why don't you tell the people? Here's how. Read the program guide, count the typos, send us the number, give or take one, at Typo Contest 2012, 530-SAB, Ann Arbor, Michigan, 48109, or pp at wcbn.org. That's the letters, pp at wcbn.org. The WCBN Program Guide Typo Contest 2012, brought to you by WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. No purchase necessary. Must enter to win. Void where prohibited. Restrictions apply. North by Northeast is coming back to Toronto this summer. June 11th through 17th, 2012. A festival of music with over 650 bands covering the gamut of rock, hip-hop, punk, country, blues, electronica, singer-songwriter, and even more. At 57 official festival stages in downtown Toronto, from sunup to beyond sunset. Do you want to go? These guys do. 30,000 people go to North by Northeast. You too can check out live music and 40 music-themed films from around the world. Listen to your favorite DJ at WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Listen to your least favorite DJ on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. You may just get some free wristbands out of them. NXME.com 